This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're working to provide timely and valuable updates around the COVID-19 epidemic and its impact on markets and the economy. To that end, today we're sharing a market update call that was hosted this morning by our investment banking division. The speakers you'll hear are John Waldron, Goldman Sachs President and Chief Operating Officer, Jan Hatzius, our chief economist, Peter Oppenheimer, our chief equity strategist, and Susie Shear and Dennis Coleman, who run the global financing group for our investment banking division. The conversation was moderated by our co-heads of investment banking, client coverage, Matt Gibson and Anthony Gutman. Now over to that discussion. I hope you find it informative. Good morning and good afternoon to everyone on the line. We're delighted to welcome you to today's market update call. My name is Anthony Gutman and alongside Matt Gibson, we run our global client coverage for investment banking at the firm. Let me start by saying that we hope that your families and your colleagues, and of course you are safe and well as we seek to navigate this unprecedented crisis. The purpose of this call is to provide some perspectives as to how we see the current environment, the market dynamics, and potential scenarios from here. Now, while we wouldn't pretend to have all the answers, um, we're sure that at a time when you're deluged by significant amounts of information, research, and data, we hope that this call will at least help you synthesize it all into some coherent thoughts and provide you with a framework for your own corporate planning and decision-making. This is clearly a situation that's evolving rapidly, and we're going to plan to provide you with further update calls in the coming weeks. So with that, let me take you through our speaker lineup. We'll start with John Waldron, our president and COO. John runs the firm alongside our CEO, David Solomon, and our CFO, Stephen Scher. And he's kindly agreed to provide some perspectives on how Goldman is handling COVID-19 and what he's seeing across regulators, central banks, governments, and corporates. We'll then turn to Jan Hatzius, our chief global economist. Jan and his team have been working night and day in the last week to provide revised views on the global economic impact of this crisis. He published his most recent note last night with further downgrades to U.S. global GDP but with the forecast of a strong recovery thereafter. And Jan will talk you through those estimates and then reflect on what we think clients should be looking for in terms of signs that the economy is healing. Peter Oppenheimer, our chief equity strategist, who's based in London, will then discuss some perspectives on the European economy and the actions of the ECB and central banks, as well as some views on equity markets and the paths they may chart from here. We'll then close with Susie Scher, who runs our financing businesses in investment banking. Susie will explain what's happening across equity and debt markets and what that means for corporates. And with that, let me hand over to Matt Gibson. Thanks, Anthony, and welcome, everyone, and welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate everybody's time. So, John, so John why don't we kick it off with uh, a question we've gotten from a lot of clients, which is the health of the global banking system. It feels very different uh, this time versus in 2008. What are your observations on that? What indicators do you look for uh, with respect to health of the system? And how should our clients think about this? I appreciate the question. Um, I guess I'd say a couple things at the outset. First, um, we feel very good about the overall health of the banking system. I would observe this, this crisis we're living in now is really, you know, began as more of a, a real economy crisis, a, you know, almost a corporate crisis, large and small businesses alike. Uh, you know, Main Street uh, crisis more than than you know the last time around, which was really kind of a banking crisis that bled into the real economy. Um, this is really more of a demand shock in the real economy, and it's the banking system 
that I think is going to be used as a as a transmission mechanism to help uh, heal the economy. Uh, and fortunately, we came into this period um, with a much healthier banking system than we did, you know, last time around. So, you know, there was lots of incremental uh, regulation and liquidity buffers added um, to the banking system, you know, both in the United States and globally on the back of the financial crisis. And so if you look at the capitalization level today and the, the ability to absorb losses today, the industry is extremely well capitalized right now. Just to give you some dimensions to that, we've increased as an industry our tier one capital, which is a key kind of regulatory metric by which we're all evaluated um, on a global basis by over 75% since the pre-crisis levels. Uh, So if you measure back to like the second quarter of 2008, which would have been right around the the beginning of the financial crisis, um, that tier one capital for U.S. banks would have been about a trillion dollars. In the fourth quarter of 19, so let's just say before the advent of the coronavirus, in the U.S., that tier one capital would have been north of a trillion seven. So a pretty substantial increase in tier one <laughs> capital just for the U.S. banks alone. Leverage ratios that would suggest a $250 billion incremental excess capital uh, capacity uh, on leverage requirements across the industry. So when you look at the largest U.S. banks, the total loss absorbency has doubled really over um, the period from 2008 till today. And so I think you're looking at a banking industry that is exceptionally well capitalized to deal with uh, the stresses that we that we have in front of us as an economy. I would also say that we're keenly aware of our role uh, as a system and as a, as a banking industry to being um, an important part of the engine to get the economy back up and running uh, as we get hopefully over the apex of the of the coronavirus uh, crisis, so we can get kind of back into thinking about how to get the economy back up and running. We're going to play as an industry a very important role. And one of the things that that we feel good about at Goldman Sachs is that we've been alongside our brethren in, in the industry, really working closely together in a coordinated fashion to support the system. Uh, you may have seen that that um, last week uh, we agreed. Um, to, uh, to suspend our share buyback uh, as an industry. And we also announced a coordinated discount window draw from, from the Federal Reserve as an industry. Uh, both measures of showing real support and coordination as an industry for the system. Um, you know, Our focus in the last couple of weeks has really been on the shorter term money markets. We've, we've been working closely together as an industry and with our regulators in, in working to get policy uh, implemented to improve the CP markets and ultimately the term credit markets. Um, I'll make some comments, I guess, later about this. But but you know we've seen meaningful improvement in the CP market. Certainly not functioning exactly as normal nor the way we all want them to. But they're materially better this week than they would have been coming into last week. Uh, you know where they were really not functioning uh, very well at all. Um, and as a measure of the healing process in the financial markets, particularly in in term credit. Um, we've now seen an investment-grade uh, issuance, $110 billion of issuance last week, $36 billion of issuance on Monday, and likely another 10 or so billion dollars today, uh, and $250 billion in the last month, all effectively record levels. The term credit markets are starting to heal themselves, which is going to be an important indicator of getting credit flowing back into the economy. Uh, and I think the banking sector will be an important transmission mechanism in, uh, in, you know, in, in affecting that. And so, John, just picking up on that theme of, you know, the financial markets healing, it's obviously been a very turbulent three weeks. 
for our clients in the markets. As you mentioned, better tone this week. What's your clients watch for as the markets heal uh, in the coming weeks? Uh, you talked about commercial paper, which has been a huge focus, investment grade, high yield. Uh, t- touch on equity and IPOs and how that would normally kind of heal itself and come back over time. Sure. Well, I would I would highlight at the outset a couple things, one of which is if you had asked any of us, could we run the financial market system with 95 plus percent of our people at the major banks, the major stock exchanges, the major uh, you know, other counterparties in the system working from home, we probably would have all had a fair bit of skepticism about that. I think one of the things that will be a, you know, a bright light around what's an otherwise fairly dark period for us is, uh, is the fact that the markets are functioning really well uh, and things are, uh, you know, are working, generally speaking, at a pretty high level um, in what's obviously a very stressful period with a bunch of people working from home where the technology, knock on wood, is, is functioning very, very effectively. You may not like what you see on your screen in terms of asset prices, but the actual functioning of markets and the provision of liquidity uh, is, you know, is still very effective, um, which I think a number of us were quite concerned about when this began a few weeks ago. Um, and so that's an important thing to keep, you know, keep in mind and to take stock of and to feel good about. Uh, the second thing I would say is the the real stress points were in the short-term money markets and in the credit markets. I highlighted that the CP market and the IG investment grade markets are starting to heal themselves. That still has a quality bias. So in CP, A1, P1 rated issuers are you know getting some duration and getting back to reasonable pricing. Uh, but A2, P2 still shorter duration, wider pricing than would have been the case in more normalized markets. So we're still seeing a quality bias, even in the shortest term money markets, despite the Fed's um, intervention. Uh, and then when you get into term credit, investment grade and below investment grade, similar phenomenon where higher rated product, uh, not surprisingly, getting back to reasonable pricing, lower rated product still, you know, still struggling. Um, and so just to give you some dimension on that, investment grade market, two weeks ago, when we kind of started trying to get some new issuance priced, the new issue concessions uh, for high quality product, um, you know, kind of single A rated, double A rated, would have been 60 to 75 basis points of new issue concession. Today, that's sort of zero to 20 basis points. So we've seen a pretty material change in new issue concessions. Um, and in some cases, the you know, the... Um, the concessions are are really negligible. Uh, when you get into lower rated product, um, we're still seeing fairly healthy concessions, but importantly, uh, secondary trading levels after the new issue has been absorbed have been pretty strong, which is what you'd like to see. So I would say the market is really in in the investment grade side starting to uh, repair itself pretty pretty quickly. You know, you mentioned equities, Matt. I would say on equities. The, the outflows from equities uh, were pretty significant. Last week was a $26 billion outflow week, the largest since December of 2018, which is really the last time we had a significant hiccup in the markets. Um, you know, I think the S&P volatility has been, uh, been kind of eye-popping for people. We saw both the biggest one-day drop since 1987 at down 12% and the biggest one-day surge uh, since 2008 at plus 9.4%, so it's a tremendous amount of volatility. I think what you're seeing right now in equities is, um, you know, a little bit of a rally on the back of obviously significant drop in, in asset prices, but also some technical, um, 
buying power uh, in the context of pension fund rebalancing, which typically happens at the end of every month. So we're now at the end of the of the of the month of March, obviously, and they're uh, in. In asset managers and hedge funds, there are uh, positive perspectives around the amount of rebalance activity that will come into the market from pension funds, and there's a, some buying ahead of that flow. So we're cautious about what we see in equities right now, and, and I'm sure Jan and Peter will have a comment on this. But uh, you know, it's been it's been a good recovery. But I think if you look at your screen and you see the Nasdaq down, you know, 12 or 13 percent, and the S&P down 19 or 20 percent. Uh, on the back of what we're seeing from a real economy standpoint, it feels like a pretty, a pretty quick recovery. Uh, Jan will go through his forecast in a minute here, and it's you know it's obviously pretty dramatic in terms of what could happen near term. And so you know I think we're a little cautious on the equity market here, um, given the, the the quickness of the recovery. And I think it has some technical aspects to it. Um, you know, in terms of of other markets, I think leveraged lending and leveraged markets is a place to be focused on. Uh, you know, I think the the concern we would have is the level of defaults that could be ahead of us in the context of you know real economy demand shock uh, data that will come you know in the coming weeks and months ahead. So, you know, worried about that. That's a marketplace that has less. Uh, to no government intervention, uh, and so that's a you know that's an area that I think is going to get a lot of focus. Um, you know, both in terms of, of regular way high yield and leverage markets, but also small business uh, markets where there's lots of lending that's been directly injected into companies that are smaller and have more leverage on them and are more exposed to economic shock. And so I think that's an area that we'll continue to, to be um, to be concerned about. The last comment I'd make on the equity markets uh, is, you know, gross exposures have come down an enormous amount. So whether it's exposure in the institutional market with uh, with hedge funds, asset managers, insurance companies, pension funds, et cetera, those exposures are well off. But also retail exposure is 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 heavily uh, reduced. So household exposure uh, way way down, uh, you know, directly and through mutual fund ownership. And so you know, I think you've seen people take a lot of risk off, which is uh, which is probably helpful in the context of um, you know of the potential uh, buying power that's on the sidelines right now. IPO market, you know, obviously uh, this is not the time for IPOs. Uh, you know, those are those are riskier uh, asset classes. Um, you know, I think we will likely see uh, as the markets repair themselves the opportunity for companies to start coming public. Again, we will likely see some more equity issuance ahead of us, um, but that'll be a market that'll come back slower. Uh, and I think on on the M and A side, you know, we're actually encouraged by the amount of dialogue we see in the M and A. Um, you know, in the M&A environment, not as much deal activity, obviously, given the, the volatility, but we're encouraged by the amount of activity we see in terms of conversations, people drawing up lists of companies and assets that they're interested in and looking at as things settle down a little bit. And so I think if we were to get some uh, more normalcy in the markets and a slight bit more confidence that the economic recovery could be sooner rather than later, I think you'll start to see a pickup in M&A as people start looking at the asset prices um, as more attractive than where they obviously saw them, uh, you know, a month or two ago. Thanks, Sean. That was a that was a great walkthrough of the of the various markets. Uh, Want to shift gears a little bit? I know you spend a lot of your time talking to management teams around the world, and one of the topics that has come up a lot is how supply chains might shift as a result of what's happened with COVID nineteen. So. What would be your overall observation on that uh, based on the conversations that you've had with CEOs in the past couple of months? 
Well, I would say two things here, really. One is I think the combination of the China trade uh, dynamic that we've been through, you know, the last, uh, call it 18 or so months, and the COVID, um, you know, crisis, uh, I think has really put a clear spotlight for most of the companies and clients that I speak with directly on the, you know, the excessive concentration in many of their supply chains, uh, you know, whether it's China-specific um, or otherwise, you know, I think I think there's a, an increasing realization that supply chains, in the name of efficiency and cost and outsourcing, um, you know, have become a bit more concentrated, a bit less focused on on um, you know, maybe the United States uh, or markets where you feel a little bit more measure of control and a little bit more of an ability to create flexibility. Um, you know, I think that, that the combination to me of the virus coupled with the, tri- the China trade uh, dynamic, I think has really changed people's perspective. Um, and so we see and hear a lot of incremental thinking and in many cases adjusting to try to diversify supply chains, um, you know, where, where possible. And I expect that to continue and, and accelerate. Um, you know, and I think increasingly one of the aspects that will emerge, I think, out of this crisis, uh, which, again, I think will be amplified by the virus as much as it was by the trade dynamics that we've seen, you know, maybe U.S.-led, is the, the element of national security uh, and whether, you know, supply chains become a bit more, I don't want to say nationalized as a matter of policy, but a bit more embedded in things that are more national security oriented. Uh, and there's more pressure from governments to be more thoughtful about that as it relates to, you know, kind of national strategy as opposed to just, um, you know, just capitalist behavior. So those would be my my thoughts on that topic. John, that's great. That's helpful. Just just shifting a little bit towards what you've seen um, with the regulators. And we know you've been spending a huge amount of time with the Fed and with others. It'd be great to get your perspectives on the stimulus bill that we've just seen come out. And how you think in practice it's going to be executed over the next few days and weeks there? Well, I would say that, that first of all, I've been, and we've been at Goldman Sachs, very impressed with the speed, um, particularly of the monetary policy response. Uh, you know, I think the good news about having been through the financial crisis is the monetary policy apparatus around the world, you know, had things on the shelf that were playbook, you know, elements of the playbook that were de- deployed in 2008 and nine. Uh, where it took them a long time to develop in 2008-9, they were able to deploy them much quicker this time, given that experience. And I think that's had an enormously important impact on financial markets, and I think will have an important impact on the ultimate recovery. Fiscal policy obviously lags that for lots of good reasons, including just the politics and various components of you know of each country that has to respond. But again, I I I observe you know a pretty favorable and quick response on the back of. Um, Governments, from a fiscal standpoint, uh, you know, in a crisis period here, not all of it perfect, of course, but but I think you have to at least commend the speed uh, and, in many cases, the size of the response. In the U.S., you know, you look at the two plus trillion dollar bill that was passed, um, you know, on a twenty one or so trillion dollar economy. It's a big it's a big move. Um, you know, I think our observation, I'm sure Jan will address this as well. Our observation is it, it, it may end up being a down payment on uh, what needs to be a bigger move in the context of the economic impact that this will have. But but it's a big move. Um, you know, a, a large chunk of it, hopefully uh, spent in 2020, although some of it I think will spill into 2021. Um, 
you know, very targeted towards specific industries that are having more of an impact versus others. Um, you know, just to tick through the math, which many of you have seen, $380 billion towards small business, mostly executed through the SBA facilities. Some of that will be executed through the banking system. I think that is going to be a complex uh, rubric of execution for the government. Um, you know, and I think it will take some time to get through. I think it'll be an overwhelming application uh, by small businesses to the system. You know, I think we're a little concerned about how the system will absorb that. My guess is that's a place where if you're looking for more in the phase four package, that could be a place where they're going to have to come with more money for small business, um, you know, protection. The $500 billion that's really executed through what's called the Emergency Stabilization Fund or, or the ESF um, is really oriented uh, for, the, for the Treasury to fund and for the Fed to execute, uh, you know, backstopping um, uh, money into the, in, you know, more into the markets, into corporations. Uh, some of it earmarked really for distressed industries, whether it's airlines, uh, hotels and other uh, industries that are more on the, you know, kind of on the front lines of the early part of the distress. Others more focused on getting money out into the economy, levered, you know, through Fed, um, uh, through Fed capital. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's still to be determined in terms of how it actually gets affected. But I think it'll be powerful. Uh, and then the direct payments to individuals, which is two hundred and fifty billion dollars, um, twelve hundred dollars per adult, five hundred dollars per child, you know, up to seventy-five thousand dollars of income. Um, and then a, a significant expansion on employment insurance of $250 billion plus aid to states, uh, you know, and hospitals and otherwise. So it's a pretty powerful overall package, which I think will be, you know, incredibly effective. Uh, I think the big question is how fast can they get it? Can they get it implemented? Um, you know, we're working very closely as, as much as we can with, uh, with the U.S. government to see what kind of a role Goldman Sachs and the banking system can play in helping affect this as fast as humanly possible. And I think that's the big, the big question, which I'm sure Jan will have some views on in terms of the transmission mechanism into the economy. Great. Well, thanks, thanks for that, John. One final question. Go ahead, Matt. No, go ahead. John, just one final question before before you close off. You touched a bit at the beginning of your discussion on uh, what you've seen in terms of the Fed's actions to help the financial markets open up. You know, with the benefit of having seen the last seven days, what do you think were the most meaningful actions there in terms of really getting things going again? I think undoubtedly it's what they did uh, for the CP market in terms of putting together both a primary and secondary facility for commercial paper, which effectively allowed for uh, the prime funds who are the traditional buyers of, um, of commercial paper out there in the marketplace, it, it, it allowed them to, to you know, effectively stem the outflows uh, with, you know, with, with kind of Fed backstop, if you will, uh, allowing them to kind of you know, maintain their, their um, liquidity um, you know, metrics in a better place where they didn't need to put up gates and shut down the outflows, uh, which was really, you know, kind of the equivalent of the break the buck phenomenon we saw in 2008. Uh, you know, I think the Federal Reserve was was quick and adept in making sure that that didn't happen this time. And that had a huge impact on the functioning of those markets, which is really what allowed the CP market to start to heal itself, which is what allowed the investment grade market to start to open up. So that had a powerful combined impact. So the combination of the CP facilities coupled with the 
the you know their their extension of quantitative easing, which was effectively the notion that that the Fed and the and the Treasury with the Treasury's help would buy um, would buy um, uh, investment grade paper and mortgages. You know, started to put a little bit of salve on the on the distress in you know particularly higher quality uh, credit out in the in the in the marketplace, which I think has had a huge impact. Uh, and the other thing I would quote I would highlight would be the opening up of the discount windows uh, for banks and for dealers, uh, and the coordinated drawing that you know that the banking system has has uh, has done together to uh, you know kind of destigmatize that that effect. I think has had a good impact. On stabilizing the system as well, so I, I highlight those two aspects. Uh, you know, the Fed balance sheet is clearly going to grow uh, meaningfully from you know from here. It's a, it's north of five trillion dollars, uh, and it's going to continue to get get larger. And I think you know that'll be a, a, a fact of life for a while as they as they support markets. Uh, you know, before markets can kind of get up and running on their own. Well, John. Thanks for that. That's been a quick walk around the world and the market and economy in, in 20 minutes. Um, I know you wanted to say a few words as we end here uh, to the clients on on the phone. Yeah, I, I, I just want to highlight um, that, you know, we uh, we want to wish everybody sure. safety and health as you navigate this crisis. I mean, most we're obviously talking about markets and answering questions on on economy and and other you know important matters um, which you'll you'll hear more of from Peter and Jan but but most importantly we want to wish everybody safety and and good health and it's important to you know to stay healthy and 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 obviously look after your companies and your people I'm sure like uh, like many of you, like us you're you're focused on your your employees and and the families associated with your employees and that's that's you know of the first and and most important uh, aspect of this uh, this crisis, and so you know, we just we just want to wish you all safety there. And and if there's anything we can do in that regard, you know, we're certainly here to help in any way we can. Uh, and we also just want to thank you for your partnership. Um, you know, we're here to serve you. Uh, you know, we can be of service to you in good markets, uh, and hopefully we are. But obviously, in in more distressed and challenging markets. We hope you'll lead on us. Uh, we're we're very healthy. We're very active. We're very engaged in the markets right now. Uh, our firm is in great shape. Uh, we're blessed with rich sources of content at the firm, and we want to make those available to everybody and deliver it to you in the most digestible way that we can. So I just want to you know, highlight those two things, and then I'll hand the call back to Anthony and Matt. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for taking the time. And, and I think what we'll do now is, is shift over to Jan Hatzius, who, as Anthony said, is our chief global economist, who we've asked to spend about 10 minutes or so on his outlook uh, for the economy, which is obviously evolving daily, given what's happening. Over to you, Jan. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, Matt, and uh, uh, welcome, everybody. Um, so our forecast is a deep but hopefully fairly short global recession. Globally, we're at minus 1.8% for real GDP in 2020. That's about a, a percentage point and a half to two percentage points below the worst year of the global financial crisis, which from a GDP perspective was actually 2009 rather than 2008. But actually, the term recession is a bit of a misnomer here, as the economy is not receding across many sectors, but it's basically coming to a sudden stop in sectors that involve a large amount of face-to-face interaction, and uh, obviously with knock-on effects on many of the sectors that are closely linked to them. And because of the sudden stop, we're expecting second quarter GDP declines that are really unprecedented in post-war history. So for the U.S., for example, we're looking for 
a minus 34% uh, quarter, uh, quarter on quarter annualized growth in Q2. And our estimates for the other advanced economies like the euro area, the UK, Canada, Australia are all in the same ballpark. Um, now, I should note that these forecasts really aren't based on any particularly extreme assumptions. Um, first, what we're saying is that the level of US GDP, for example, is going to be down about 13% in April from the January level. That's a big drop um, by historical standards, but probably doesn't seem uh, really all that overly aggressive if you look at the sectors that have been disrupted here. Uh, and then uh, you basically take the second quarter um, you know, average and then the statistical convention of annualizing these quarterly numbers, basically multiplying them by four, uh, that gives you this 34% decline then. Um, the second observation is that we already had a bit of a preview of the impact of the coronavirus on the economy uh, out of what happened in China in the first quarter. Right now, uh, China is definitely starting to look better. Um, Q2 should be quite strong, but our Asia economists estimate that the Q1 number there was probably uh, 40, um, a little over 40% negative at an annual rate. And even that number looks a bit conservative uh, based on some of the higher frequency indicators of industrial and consumer activity uh, that might not show up fully in the in the quarterly GDP numbers. Uh, and then third, uh, in terms of putting the forecast into context, we're starting to get some useful data finally um, to 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 help us gauge what's uh, what's going on. And specifically, I would highlight claims for unemployment insurance, uh, both in the U.S. and some other countries. So if you take last week's number for the U.S., uh, initial jobless claims were. 3.3 million, which is the biggest number on record by a, by a factor of nearly five, and it's equal to 2.3% of the labor force. This week, we're likely to see an even bigger number. Um, a lot of the unemployment claims offices have been backed up. Um, so for this week, we're estimating a little over 5 million, which would be another 3.5% of the, of the workforce. So that's basically 6% of the workforce in just two weeks. Um, and ultimately, we think that the layoff numbers are going to stay elevated for several more weeks. Um, just look at, for example, the news yesterday that Macy's is furloughing uh, most of its 125,000 workers. Uh, so we think that's probably going to bring the unemployment rate up to uh, about 15%, which would easily uh, be a, be a post-war high. So that raises the question, of course, what can policymakers do to stem the downturn? And John already went through uh, a number of those steps. Uh, I mean, just conceptually, I think the, the bad news is that they can't really do much uh, to stop the near-term slide. I mean, the Q2 downturn is driven really by the need for physical distancing uh, to stop the outbreak, at least until we have better medical options. So uh, there's not really much that economic policymakers can uh, can do about that. What they can do and are uh, trying to do, and I, I think are doing a lot to address, is basically two things. Uh, one, and that's the job of Congress, is to try to effectively replace the income and cash flow hit that households and firms are taking 
from these uh, from these distancing measures and the and the impact on on output. Uh, otherwise, if they didn't do that, there'd be a risk of a uh, you know very significant second round effects and uh, in the extreme more of a downward spiral. And they're trying to to stem that. So, for example, we're estimating that uh, just to put some numbers on this, we're estimating that the virus hit is going to reduce U.S. nominal GDP by a little over uh, a trillion dollars in 2020 um, in absolute terms and by just under $2 trillion uh, relative to the long-term trend in nominal GDP. So let's say the initial hit from the social distancing measures is $1.5 trillion. uh, And that effectively means $1.5 trillion is now missing from income. Um, If nothing is done, that $1.5 trillion income hit uh, is going to deal uh, another uh, blow to to spending through second round effects. uh, And that's going to reduce output uh, yet further. And uh, that's, I think, that's why I see the uh, the, the, the fiscal policy package come in. Um, and that's the most important uh, part, uh, uh, you know, maybe apart from the, the money for the Fed facilities that I'll, that I'll get to. Um, so how, how uh, helpful is this package? I think the, the package does a pretty good job in addressing uh, these income hits. It's mostly, I think, focused on the right things with maybe half of the a little over $2 trillion total going to income and cash flow support. Uh, and John went through uh, these measures in, in some detail. Um, you know, I think the main question about the package is whether it's quite large enough. Um, and, uh, you know, probably relative to the numbers I just talked about, the hole isn't being filled completely. Obviously, that's going to depend on uh, just how large the hit to, to GDP is, and that's something that we're all learning about. So uh, I think that's still a little bit TBD. Um, but uh, at least under our uh, forecast, I think there's still a um, potential need to come back and do more. And that's one reason why we're expecting a phase four package of several hundred billion dollars um, that is probably going to be focused on uh, some additional income support, including uh, income support for states and municipalities. The other thing that policymakers can do uh, is really to protect the financial system from systemic damage. Um, otherwise, you'd get a different source of negative second round effects because solvent and credit creditworthy firms would be unable to fund themselves. Um, so uh, the Fed's rolled out uh, you know, a number of new facilities, which again, John went through, which, I'm, uh, uh, you know, which I'm, I'll just mention here, the CP facilities, the money market facilities, uh, the primary and secondary uh, market uh, corporate bond facilities, and a restart of the term asset-backed securities lending facility, which is focused on uh, asset-backed securities. And I think the important development in the in the fiscal legislation really was the funding uh, of up to $454 billion in additional funds that are going to be available in the Treasury's Exchange Stabilization Fund, which the Fed can, to a large extent, use to uh, increase and uh, increase these facilities and, uh, and, and, and potentially introduce new ones. 
Now, how successful has it been? I think uh, I would definitely say credit where credit is due. Um, the Fed's been extremely aggressive and extremely quick. And relative to a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the serious dislocations that uh, had developed in the fixed income markets have diminished. And at least for now, the Fed is doing uh, a, a great job managing to keep the system functional. And I have no doubt that they're going to continue to be on the front foot. Now, what does it mean for the economic outlook? Uh, I would say it, uh, you know, to us, it, it, it suggests that while the near-term outlook is very negative, we have the most pessimistic Q2 forecast, uh, I think, out there. I, I think the prospects that we'll see a pretty strong recovery uh, starting around mid-year are, are pretty good. Um, now, that assumes that the infection numbers start to slow sharply over the next month. I think that's consistent with the expectations of most experts and the experience that we've had in, uh, in China, in Korea, and even hopefully to some degree Italy more recently. Uh, and our forecast assumes that people are going to gradually resume normal economic activity, cautiously, but, uh, but nevertheless consistently after the lockdowns. And in our forecast, that results in a gradual normalization of the level of GDP, if you take the U.S., for example, from 13% below normal in April to about 5% below normal in December. That's still well below normal, but it does mean that second half growth uh, is going to be, in that forecast, quite strong on a sequential basis, uh, really by any standard except uh, the, the current one, given the, the size of the drop previously. Uh, and we've got third and fourth quarter growth rates in the 10 to 20% annualized range across the major advanced economies. So in the US, for example, we're at 19% quarter on quarter annualized in the third quarter. Uh, I would also say that uh, looking again at China, the apparently quite strong recovery that we've seen in, in recent weeks there also supports the expectation that after a shock like this, you can uh, come back with significantly stronger growth, uh, although I'd also caution that the read across is imperfect, given how much more government-controlled uh, and industry-focused that economy is relative to, for example, the U.S. I don't think it's going to be as quick in the, in the U.S. as in China, but China looks very, very quick indeed, um, if you look at some of the industrial indicators in particular. Uh, maybe lastly, uh, what should we watch to see whether this forecast of a, of a very sharp decline in Q2 followed by a, a pretty good recovery in Q3, Q4 plays out? I would say, you know, three types of information. Um, you know, first and foremost, of course, the, the medical uh, information, you know, very important, obviously not our area of, uh, of expertise, but something that everybody's very focused on. The infection numbers need to come down. Uh, and need to stay down um, in order to set the stage for recovery. Uh, second, really, the indicators of market functioning and stress, which John talked about. Uh, maybe some I'd add to the list would be some of the non-U.S. indicators uh, that um, uh, include, for example, cross-currency basis spreads, which uh, have been, uh, you know, have come in somewhat, but not, uh, but still remain wide despite the, the Fed swap lines and this repo facility that they uh, rolled out this morning. 
and uh, Italian sovereign spreads, I think, would be another one on my dashboard. Those have uh, they, they remain remain significantly wider, and they've actually moved back out a little bit again in recent days after a period of improvement after the ECB became more aggressive. Uh, and then I think in terms of the economic indicators, the, there's much more premium than normal on indicators that are one timely and two, uh, that don't incorporate a lot of assumptions by the statistical authorities. So the GDP numbers, for example, I think are not going to be particularly useful uh, because they're quite lagged and they incorporate a lot of assumptions and they're probably going to understate the actual hit to output that we're seeing. Um, top of my list would be U.S. jobless claims indicators uh, every Thursday at 8.30. Um, they are very, very timely, five days after the week to which they refer and they don't incorporate any assumptions. They're just an administrative count, and they're probably the single most important economic data release for at least the, never, uh, the next several weeks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's a great run-through. Um, we'll now hand over to Peter Oppenheimer. Peter, you could take us from here. It'd be great. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I thought I'd um, just uh, reference mainly what the markets are doing and what we think is going to happen to corporate profits and the profile from here, given uh, the comments that, that John and Jan have, have made. I think the first thing to say is that if we look at the decline in equity markets around the world um, prior to the rally in the last week or so, uh, the moves have been uh, generally speaking, in line with the average moves that we've seen in bear markets over the last 100 years or so. So most equity markets fell from peak to trough, or the most recent trough, by about 30 or 35 percent. That's pretty much the average of what you tend to see in bear markets in history. What has really been remarkable about this bear market is two things. First of all, the speed, uh, and as John mentioned in his remarks, the volatility. If you look at the you know, almost uh, uh, difficult to, to uh, recall now, but the US equity market was at an all-time high just around five weeks ago. And the first declines of 20% that took it into uh, what's typically uh, thought of as bear market territory uh, really took place in record time, just 16 trading days compared to 44, which was the last record uh, set in 1929. Uh, meanwhile, the volatility has been at record levels. Um, we had uh, just the week before last three consecutive days of moves of plus or minus 9% or so, uh, the first such series since 1929. And then last week, uh, we saw, uh, at least in the US, an 18% three day rally. In global equities around 15%. Again, this is something we haven't seen. Uh, for a very long time, in fact, in the US since 1933. So just to emphasize, the aggregate moves down have not been unusual in relation to bear markets around recessions. What has been really unusual is the speed and volatility. Uh, now, John, in his remarks, said that we're not confident the equity markets have reached uh, their lows. I think the rally that we've seen over the last week or so is part of that volatility and does reflect some very encouraging support that we've begun to see uh, in policy terms, both monetary policy, which has gone a long way to really ring fence systemic risks in the financial system, which were becoming uh, more volatile in over the last week or two, but have now calmed down a lot. And secondly, the fiscal support, which is so important 
in the face of what's becoming a historical um, large decline in activity, uh, given the number of countries that are in lockdown. But I, I want to emphasize uh, that, you know, the corporate profit hit that we're expecting, uh, given the size of the falls that Jan just described, are very large and, and larger really than uh, the consensus. And indeed, I think the markets are now uh, pricing. Uh, just to give you some, uh, some num <laughs> numbers on this, we're looking for S&P profit earnings per share to fall by 33% this year. The current bottom-up consensus is minus one. Across Europe, for example, we're looking at a fall of 45% in earnings per share. The current bottom-up consensus is minus four. And we're looking at big falls across Asia as well. And actually, the consensus there is still for some growth in earnings. Now, I don't think the markets themselves are reflecting those consensus estimates. But with the rally that we've seen, we don't think that they're fully reflecting the scale of the uh, falls that we're expecting. And one way also to look at this is through valuation. Um, many of the valuation metrics, given the recent bounce in equities, are not really looking at sort of stress or, or, or trough levels that we would typically see at a bear market low. Just to give you an example here in, in the European region, uh, the forward PE based on consensus estimates, which we think are too optimistic, um, is currently around 12 times. That's for the stock 600 companies. Um, you know, when you look back at the 2008 low or in 2011 around the sovereign debt crisis, that multiple came down to between six times and eight times. Uh, and this is a similar observation that we find across other markets as well. It is true, of course, uh, that um, some valuation metrics are looking very attractive, uh, in particular dividend yields are high, particularly in relation to such low bond yields and interest rates. But again, I think we should be somewhat cautious about the prospects for this year. Uh, our U.S. strategy team are expecting dividends in the U.S. to decline by 38% over the next nine months. Uh, so on a four-year basis, dividends will be 25% below the level of 2019. And we see similar risks to dividends in Europe. Uh, the French government, for example, has argued that companies in which the government has stake should not pay dividends, and the government will vote against them during AGMs. Uh, while Norway has required financials to stop paying dividends, and the German government has also talked about imposing restrictions on payouts. So bear in mind that 10 of the 50 Eurostox companies do have government stakes, and we would expect dividends to come down. So I think there's still some downside risk to valuations before we get a market trough. Having said that, I do think uh, it's important to emphasize in line with Jan's comments about the V-shape. That is very much what we're looking for in the equity market as well. Uh, we're looking at profits or earnings per share to be rising over 50% next year from the trough levels that I described. And we would fully expect equity markets and other risk assets to anticipate uh, the recovery in the economies uh, which Jan talked about. One final point, though, about the rally that we've seen over the last uh, week or so uh, many people have said that this sort of reflects a real turning in optimism. And certainly we agree that some of the necessary conditions for a recovery are, in, are starting to be in place. 
in particular the policy support that uh, I talked about, uh, and that's true, I think, in Europe as well. Uh, having said that, rallies in bear markets are not unusual at all. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the last four or five major bear markets, uh, typically you do get rallies that average around 15 cents over around 40 days before falling back to previous lows. And if we look at the, the big bear markets in 2000 after the technology bubble burst, and in 2008, nine over the financial crisis, in both cases, there were six rallies of 10% or more or, or thereabouts before the markets um, pulled back and, and made a final low. So I think just to make final comments, what's been unusual so far about this bear market is really the speed and the volatility, which reflects some technical factors and the unprecedented nature of the downturn. We do expect a big hit to profits and dividends this year. Uh, we don't think that the final lows have been made, but we are confident that we'll get um, a strong and rapid rebound in equity markets and in profitability uh, from the lows uh, that are consistent with the economic rebound that Jan talked about. Thanks, Peter, for that uh, sobering assessment, uh, but obviously good to hear uh, that we're expecting a, a recovery later in the year once things become a little bit more clear. You know, the way that we thought we'd fi finish up this call is by having Susie Schur, who's Global Head of Capital Markets at Goldman Sachs, spend just a few minutes on what she's seeing real time across her various markets uh, and give you a sense for how the markets have healed here in the last week or two. So, Susie, over to you. Thanks, Matt. So following John and Jan and Peter, I've rewritten my entire script uh, about five times because they've said so much. Um, but what I'll try to do is kind of tie it all together and leave you with a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, you know, I run the debt and equity capital markets business globally, but I grew up in the debt business. And an interesting observation from our discussion of, of the last, uh, you know, uh, uh, 22 minutes or so is that, you know, in, in a bull market, the debt guys are negative or warriors, and the equity guys are positive. But what you just heard is sort of upside down world where the equity guys are negative and the debt guys, at least in the investment grade debt markets, are positive. And I guess in a true bear market, the opposite is true. One thing that's different about this market and different from the global financial crisis is the thing that John Waldron spent so much time talking about. And it's this incredible um, opening and performance in the investment-grade debt market, which is one of the biggest, most liquid markets in the world. And so the, the, uh, I'll say a couple more things, but the, you know, just, just like the advice to Ben in The Graduate was, was one word, plastic, my advice uh, to you all in, in the middle of this crisis is one word, and that's liquidity. And when I think about the why of the functioning of investment-grade markets, um, it's not just about investors being willing to buy bonds, but it's about issuers being willing to sell bonds. And the reason we had the biggest month ever in, 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 the, in the month March that ends today in the investment-grade market, and the biggest week ever last week, and the biggest quarter ever, is because um, unlike other financial crises, this crisis is an economic crisis. It's also a global health crisis with a bottom that isn't known. So investors um, have access to equity and a willingness to take liquidity. 
And um, what I started to say was in times of, of financial duress is that um, it, that the equity market um, really values liquidity. Um, and so, you know, I think that's really what's going on in the market. And the important takeaway on that is one, that the market is, is reopening, other markets are reopening. But also the backstory is um, the open markets aren't just about, you know, sort of less levered companies with access to the biggest market in the world, but the public markets will open for companies seeking liquidity. And we can be very, very creative in thinking about how to access those markets. So on the outside chance that my Wi-Fi goes out again, um, I'll thank you uh, for your time, wish you and your families uh, well, and uh, hopefully we get the, the, the chance to talk again soon about all of the primary markets um, in, in the world. Thanks. Completely thank you, and, and thank you on behalf of Matt and myself to all of our speakers, and thank you to all of you who've joined us today on this call. Um, as we said at the outset of the call, we plan to host a few more of these over the coming days and weeks. Um, if you have feedback as to how we can we can curate the content, we'd welcome that too. But on that note, we wish you all well, and we hope you continue to navigate these challenges well. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And please tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide their quick take on what's going on in markets and the volatility we've seen recently. This podcast was recorded on March 31st, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.